What's up, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter, again here on the Matt Baxter Show. This episode is super fun for me because it's with a comedian. Maz Jabroni is a Iranian-American comedian who I got the awesome introduction to meet, hang out with. We dive into like what it actually means to tell a joke. We dive into what it actually means uh, to, to, to bring humor to people's lives and, and you know how does a comedian actually begin his public career and not just be a funny guy, but also be somebody who's influential and the different things that you can bring into the world of comedy, which is just fantastic. So Maz, thank you so much for being a guest in this episode. Thanks for taking some time uh, to share just the joy that you bring to people and this whole thing called laughter, which I think is so important. So Maz, loved having you as a guest. Keep doing your thing and just appreciate so much. All the listeners out there, tune in. He's got a TED Talk. He's doing a lot of cool things. So thanks again, Maz. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, Pipe me with a question again, just so we're on the same page. So how did you get to know Navid and how did you end up doing podcasts? How'd you end up in this podcast world? Yeah, yeah. So so the original start of the podcast, so my, my startup is a video interviewing company. So we help companies hire, right? And mm-hmm. so what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a platform that job seekers could go to for content to say, hey, how do you get a job? So we started this podcast with like interviewing HR managers, talent acquisition people, basically like, yo, tell us how job seekers can get a job. What advice do you have? And then it evolved a little bit because honestly, like I did the first 10. They were awesome. And then I was like, ah, I don't really know anybody else in HR. So it was yeah. like, okay, let's let's expand it a little bit. Let's talk about like purpose. Like, why do you do the job that you do? What is it that gets you fired mm-hmm. up? And then it expanded to being like a podcast around purpose, passion, and calling. So what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? And so oh, yeah. that's where that's where the whole direction of the podcast went. Specifically, how I got connected with Navid was uh, a good friend, Nilly uh, Rafai, who is, uh, she was an executive uh, executive producer for Netflix. Now she's doing a bunch of stuff on her own. She's made like a boatload of intros and was like, yo, Navid would be the like perfect guest. We did a show, ripped it for like an hour and a half. And then he was like, hey, by the way, I got the perfect guy, Maz. He's not that funny. He kind of, you know, <laughs> super boring. But if you needed to like deal with somebody, he'd be the guy to deal with. So that's, that's how it funny. let it. <laughs> well, I hope I uh, I don't let you down here because, uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of times when people go, oh, you're a comedian, they expect you to be like, bing, bang, boom, you know, but I'm kind of like, eh, you know, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just being, I'm just being. How often do you get like, yo, what's your favorite joke? You know, that's uh, once in a while. It's funny. I just saw a clip on um, Twitter. I guess uh, Kanye with his with his tour he's doing to promote his album and his quote unquote presidential run. Uh, there was a clip of a video where he's in Ohio and I guess uh, Dave Chappelle shows up to show his support of Kanye because they're buddies and they're all standing there waiting for a picture and someone's videotaping it and Kanye says something like, all right, Dave, tell us a joke. Make us laugh. We need to be, you know, we need to laugh. And then Dave was like, oh, man, it's, it's, I just had my first coffee. I don't know what to say. And then, they got, and then he's like, come on, you got a joke. And he kind of is pushing him for a joke. And he said something like, make it a good, uplifting joke. And then Chappelle says something like, oh, you got the wrong guy. I don't do uplifting jokes or something like that. But, <laughs> and that made them all laugh. But that said, I saw W. Kumau Bell had, had uh, replied to that um video saying it's good to see that even dave Chappelle has the same response when somebody says tell me a joke which is kind of like you're stuck you know like i i I think comedians quite often we're not the old it's not the old days where it was like you know borscht belt where you had you know 50 jokes lined up in your arsenal and you'd be out and about and someone would say tell a joke and you would be like bing bang boom you know um, I think stand-up is a lot more about here's my opinion on something. And so quite often when that is taken off of stage and into a situation where you're in a social setting and someone says, tell a joke, you, I quite often get stuck and I go, ah, and, and, and really I, I'll go back to like some kid jokes that I do with my kids. Like, you know, my daughter claims to have written this joke. I don't know if she did or not, but she claims she did. She's nine years old. She said she wrote the joke, which is, uh, where do rappers go to shop for clothing? Matt, this is where you say where. I know. I was thinking, like, do I have a good answer? Or, uh, okay. like, could I, could I come up with something witty? No, I got no, I got, let, I got. Let, let's try it again. Where do rappers go to shop for clothing? 
Maz, where? <laughs> Jay-Z Penny. Ah, nailed it. My, yeah, my daughter wrote that one. And so then I wrote in response, I wrote, uh, what's a good night for a fish to go out? What's the right night? <laughs> Tonight. Uh, add the sound yeah. effect. <laughs> so those are like my jokes. And then obviously you got some dirty jokes, this and that. But really... Uh, when people say tell a joke, it's quite often an awkward situation where you're like, I, I do stand up. It's very different than joke telling. I love that. That's honestly like that's something that I so um, here's here's a relative world that I get that's a little bit different. So I'm, I'm a startup guy. I have a bunch of text. You know, I, I have a bunch of ideas. None of them are good, but I, I run with a lot of ideas and people come at me and they're like, yo, what's your next idea? And I'm like, uh what? Like, I, I, I'm not ready for this. Like, I, I'm not yeah. ready on the fly with them. And so I was thinking about for you, like as a comedian, like you're, you're like, you're, it's in the zone. It's the preparation. It's knowing the audience. It's vibing the audience. Like I got to imagine, I, I know, I, I, I don't know for sure. I, that's part of the reason why I want to do the whole podcast is hear about that. But like, just to have somebody straight up say like, oh, you're supposed to be professionally a funny guy. Now tell a joke. Like that's got to be super awkward. Yeah. It's not that it's, I mean, it's just, it's a, it, it's, Again, I think there might there might be some comedians who might have jokes in their back pocket. I think these these days less and less of that type exists. Uh, if you're an impressionist, maybe you can go into an impression or something and, and say do you know do a funny character. But for the most part, stand-up comedy is your point of view from the stage, and it's funny because you're on stage uh, ranting about your political thoughts, or you're on stage, uh, you know. Uh, talking about how frustrated you are with your kids or your wife or getting older, whatever your point of view is on whatever topic. And so people watch it and they relate and they laugh, uh, or even if they don't relate, they can laugh at your frustrations and at your intonations. So that's that. So to be in public and have someone say, tell a joke, you can't just all of a sudden go, you know, um, God, kids run the world these days, don't they? Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to, have to play with the kids of my parents' friends. Now I have to play with the parents of my kids' friends. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's a bit, you know? It's a that's bit. actually kind of funny, though. That's actually pretty funny. <laughs> well, it's all true. I mean, listen, a lot of it is like, that's my point of view, and that's where we come from. But it's not a joke. It's not, again, like my daughter just uh, uh, told me a joke that she, because we have the Alexa. So she went up to Alexa and was like, tell me a joke. So Alexa told her a joke that, uh, a guy walks into a bar and the bartender goes, is that a French poodle? Because uh, she's going wee-wee all over the place. That's a joke, right? That's a, that's a joke about a dog pissing all over the place. But, but stand-up is very different. Stand-up is your point of view on certain subjects. And if we're talking in a conversation, I can be funny about you know, my point of view about something. Um, and a lot of it is also how you deliver it. I just did like I'm doing uh, on Instagram and stuff. Nowadays with with the social media, you're always on there. You're trying to do stuff. You're trying to you know garner more hits and views and whatever. So I've been doing something that I call the Persian Word of the Week where I teach people a word of Persian every week or whatever uh, or a couple words a week. And so it originally started with very silly words uh, that like when you take – certain when you dissect a word in persian you can uh, sometimes it has double meanings in english and it becomes funny and you know hopefully people are learning something but now it's also become kind of a um a, a weekly statement on something that's going on in the public so currently the fact that there's people that are not wearing their masks i did I, you know this week i was like i'm going to teach you how to tell someone to wear their mask in persian and so the, the comedy of that clip, the, the funny part of that clip comes from when I get angry in teaching, while I'm teaching you, I get angry because I'm frustrated by the fact that people are saying, I don't want to wear my mask. So I'm like, just wear the goddamn mask. Like I, I'm losing my, my, my mind in the actual video post. All that to say, again, stand-up comedy is a point of view. It's, it's, it's your thoughts on certain things. Um, it's not joke telling. Those are two different things. So, um, okay, let's take this all way back. You, you okay with that? Yeah. 
Tell me, uh, tell me the life story, and then I want to dive back into that topic and go the worst direction storytelling. We're going to go back, and then we're going to come back to that. But I want to hear your whole life story that's led up to that statement, and then we'll go from there. Is that cool? Sure. So I was born in Iran in 1972. Then in late 78, as protests were happening, um, and the revolution in Iran happened in 1979, but in late 78, um, things were getting out of control. My father was on business in New York. He told my mom, hey, why don't you bring um, uh, two of the kids, me and my sister, the older kids with you. At the time, I was six years old. Why don't you bring them to New York for two weeks over their winter school break? And then you can go back and hopefully by then the protests have died down and things have quieted down and, you know, the government is has more control over what's happening. Um, and so we really thought we we're just going to be coming for two weeks. Um, and uh, we even left my baby brother back in Iran at the time. And uh, when we came to America, the protests just got uh, worse and worse. And it got to the point where we ended up staying. So I always tell people we packed for two weeks, we stayed for 40 years or whatever it is. And that's a pretty common story with Iranians in general. I think a lot of Iranians who could afford to get out of the country around the time of the revolution, they did. A lot of them settled in Los Angeles, which is the biggest population of Iranians outside outside of Iran. Um, my family moved to Northern California. So I moved to Northern California, grew up in Marin County, very nice place. Uh, my father was a successful businessman, so we could afford it. We were there. Um, I had a handful of Persian friends, but a lot of my friends were just, you know, American dudes, you know, just hanging out, playing baseball, just being a kid. Uh, by the time I was about 10, I think, I saw Eddie Murphy, I think, for the first time and just fell in love with what he was doing. Um, also when I first came to America, I probably watched a lot of cartoons and stuff. So, so real, real quick on the, the Eddie Murphy part, like for, yeah. for you, uh, being a comedian today, what was it that you fell in love with? Was it the laughter? Was it the, obviously it's not the joke telling. Was it the storytelling? Was it the opinions? Like I what was it that Eddie Murphy in the early eighties was a rock star and that was the biggest album that was out. So delirious was the biggest thing. Every kid from my age group, a lot of comedians from my age group, whether it's like Joe Coy, Sebastian Maniscalco, um, uh, a lot of these guys all look at Eddie Murphy as their inspiration. I think he inspired a lot of comedians, like guys that I talked to in my age, they're like Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy. So even before delirious, he had a tape called comedian. It wasn't even a video, it was an audio. So we'd put that in a tape recorder and listen to it with my friends. And he just was a rock star. He was all over. It was kind of like what Kevin Hart must be to a lot of kids nowadays, you know. So um, I think also that when I first came from Iran to America, I ended up watching a lot of television, uh, a lot of cartoons. You know, those are all funny. So somewhere along the line, I think I fell in love with funny. Um, also, I think... I realized that in, in having analyzed that time of my life, I believe that <clears throat> there were there were a few things that I would use to make friends at that point. You know, when I was in the third, because when I first came to America, it was second grade. Um, then, uh, you know, by the third or fourth grade, the hostage situation happened and Americans would uh, beat up. Iranians, because even though the Iranians in America had nothing to do with the government in Iran who took Americans hostage, and if anything, we were opposed to that government because we fled that country to come to America, still, as we see in America, even nowadays, um, we, are, we can be very ignorant. And so we blame everybody for the actions of the government of another country. So Iranians came here, and then all of a sudden, Back then, they would call you uh, uh, effing Iranian, fucking Iranian, and they would beat you up. Now, I never got beaten up, but I did get called uh, fucking Iranian. Um, but I know of people who did get beaten up, and I know I've heard stories of people like being, you know, even either being uh, like people trying to kill people. I mean, it got really ugly. Um, so I think around that time, I was also a good athlete. So the way... I I've kind of analyzed this. I think the way that I was trying to make friends back then was through sports was one way. Uh, another way was uh, I used to go 
with my mom to the grocery store and I had a sweet tooth. So I would buy all kinds of sweets. And I remember going to school with like one bag, had my sandwich, drink and a snack. The other bag was just filled with sweets. And I remember giving out Starburst to kids and stuff. So I, I always say it's almost like I learned how to bribe my way into friendships at a young age. And the third way that I think I was making friends was just being funny. So I think I like making voices, you know, funny voices and sounds and this and that. And, and uh, so all of that, I think, kind of led to my wanting to perform. I think I also was like, I remember in the fourth grade, there was a, a lady who came to our school to, to, like, to sing for some choir or something. And I think I had like a pretty good voice. So I, th I vaguely remember her saying, hey, you want to join our choir? We're going to be singing at the uh, San Francisco Giants game. And my parents had no idea what that meant. So they were like, no, thanks. Um, but all of that to say that I think somewhere along the line, I, I took a liking to, to, to performing. And, and then I see Eddie Murphy and, and I love what he's doing and I'm watching his specials and I'm watching Saturday Night Live and I'm staying up late. Like, again, parenting back then was very different than now. Like back then, they'd just be like, go to your room, but you'd have a TV in your room. So you'd be watching SNL, you'd be watching uh, Evening at the Improv, all that stuff. I watched all the HBO, Rodney Dangerfield, Young Comedian specials. And so slowly but surely fall in love with stand-up and uh, when I'm 12, I start doing plays in school, doing the musicals. And I'm kind of a background, you know, the first year because our school was seventh and eighth grade. So I was in the seventh grade, get into the school play. I'm like a background singer, dancer. And the director, her name is Shirley Bonbright. She told us all. She goes, when you're doing a musical, when you're on that stage, you need to always be smiling when you're singing and dancing. So... Again, in having done a little bit of psychoanalysis, I come from an immigrant background and in my culture, in the Iranian culture, I'm sure it's similar for like Indians and some like Chinese and a lot of immigrants, respecting your elders is a big, big thing. Whereas in America, you're taught to question your elders, question everybody. In our cultures, it's like just respect your parents, respect your elders. So I remember when Shirley Bonbright, the director said, smile when you're dancing, I took that to mean smile when you're dancing. And I think a lot of the other kids, you know, were like, whatever, you know. So there I was, just a background singer and dancer, smiling all the time. And one day I show up in uh, at rehearsals and I'm under the weather and I go to uh, Shirley Bombright. I go, Miss Bombright, I'm sick, but I came just so I can, you know, stay up to date with the rehearsals. She goes, great. I'm singing, I'm dancing, I'm smiling. She stops the whole rehearsal. She's like, everybody stop, everybody stop. She goes, look at him, look at him. He's sick, he's up there, he's smiling. You should all learn from him. And I really think that was a moment of like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. And it was an encouraging moment. And, uh, and uh, it, it made me feel good. And then uh, I came back the next year, eighth grade, and I got the lead in the play, Little Abner. Uh, and singing, dancing, people are clapping, people are laughing. So I think all of that got me, you know, uh, bitten by the bug, as they would say. So I love being on stage. I love being a ham. Wanted to do comedy, wanted to do acting. Um, but my parents, being immigrant parents, would have nothing to do with it. So even though, like, these directors, after, you know, after some of these plays, my parents would show up and the director would say, hey, your son really has what it takes to do this. Like you should really consider, you know, letting him go to like acting school or something. And my parents would like smile politely and say, yeah, sure. And then the car, they'd be like, that bitch is crazy. You're not doing any of that. You're going to be a doctor, a lawyer or engineer. Um, so that was kind of my, my struggle through high school. I did a, uh, I, I went to a school called Redwood High School, which is the same school that Robin Williams had gone to. And, they had a really good theater department and I was in that department and I was doing plays and I was excelling at it. And even that teacher was like, you can do this professionally. But meanwhile, my parents were like, no, no. So that was a struggle. And all along, I also wanted to do stand up, which was, so I was, I was acting. Stand up's very different, especially when you first start out. It's intimidating because when you're acting, all you got to do is learn your lines, rehearse, 
and hope that it goes well. And if it doesn't go well, you know, you, there's a, plenty of people to blame between the director to the playwright to the audience, whatever. Stand-up, uh, on the other hand, is just all you. You're the writer, the director, you're everything. So I was always um, a little intimidated to try stand-up. And when I was- Can, sitting, I, can, I, can I ask something on that? Yeah. So uh, did the, related to the whole idea of um, stand-up is sort of, there's nobody else to blame except for yourself, both for successes and failures, whereas acting in a part, there's a lot of other you know factors at play there. For you, would you say, like, you started to get to it, did the did you like the ownership of stand up or would you say you more gravitated towards the nail what you're given to as a task in the acting world here are your lines do the best you can sort of fall under the purview of somebody else well at the time i was young and i was intimidated so i loved having you know i could do i could act that wasn't a problem stand up was intimidating and 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 i tried at the age of 17 to participate in kind of a talent show. And I would try to write material and I would write something, you know, I'm 17, obviously a lot of the stuff is puberty driven. I'm, Eddie, I'm a fan of Eddie Murphy's. So the jokes were like, you know, why is there genitalia in the middle of our body where it's really hard to move? Why isn't it on our hands? So you just walk around all day, like high-fiving people and having sex. So silly stuff like that and i would do it i would write it and i'd be like oh my god that is brilliant and then that next day i would look at it and be like oh that's horrible so i would i actually chickened out because i put so much weight on the performance you know a uh, quick side note there's actually a comedian named jeremy hotz who actually does a joke like that and, he, and he's very funny with it and it just shows you people have similar thoughts, but I've seen that now years later. And I was like, Oh, that was the joke I was trying to do like 30 years ago. But, um, when I had a little bit of, I tried, so I tried to write for that comedy, for that talent show at the age of 17, chickened out. Then in my early twenties, while I was in college, I entered a comedy competition and all I was doing was different accents and voices, but there was really no point of view. Um, the comedy competition was canceled because they didn't have enough like tickets sold. So I ended up doing like a couple of open mics with this little monologue I'd created. And then again, I chickened out and I didn't know what to do with it. And it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties when I had gone through a bunch of things. Cause I ended up going to undergrad at UC Berkeley, studied political science, thought I was going to be a lawyer because my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. Then my junior year in college, I go to Italy and I study abroad and I fall in love with what this professor is doing. And I go, okay, you know what? I'll be a professor. That's a good compromise between pleasing my parents with a reputable job while also getting to stand in front of a bunch of people and kind of perform. So when I come back to the States, I end up getting into a PhD program at UCLA Meanwhile, all along, I'm always doing plays, always doing plays, always have stand-up in the back of my mind, listening to stand-up, watching stuff, going to plays, just performing in plays whenever I can as a hobby. And it's not until I drop out of the graduate school, my first year in graduate school, and I end up in an advertising agency, and I'm working in an ad agency just as an assistant uh, as a, to the creative director. And I'm still doing, I'm doing a play in LA with some friends. I've moved to LA at this point. Uh, my family's down here at that point too. And I'm doing some, this play and I was making copies. They're, 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 we had a dubbing room at the ad agency where you can make VHS video copies for all the actors in the play. So I'm making VHS copies for the actors in the play. And there's this older gentleman by the name of Joe Ryan, who was in his 60s at the time. Joe was a producer at the advertising agency, super positive, super encouraging. He sees the video that I'm making and he goes, hey, you're funny. Have you ever thought about doing this professionally? And I said, Joe, you know, I wanted to do it in high school. My parents talked me out of it. I tried a little bit in college. I got intimidated. I did a little bit in grad school, blah, blah, blah. But I said, you know, I said, Joe, I'm in my mid-20s right now. I was 26 at the time. And I said, uh, I'm going to keep working in advertising for another four years till I'm 30, save up as much money as I can, and also try to get into copywriting in advertising 
so that I can work as a freelance copywriter. And by that point, I'm hoping that I can make good enough money where I can work half the year as a copywriter and pursue acting the other half of the year. And he took me into his office and he sat me down and he goes, listen, he goes, Maz, I am now in my 60s. And he goes, when I was in my 20s, there was some stuff I wanted to do, but I never did it. So he's like, if you really want to do it, you should do it. You should go for it. So it was kind of a light bulb moment. And I'd really been thinking about it a lot. And I've been inspired by a few other actors and comedians I've been seeing that look like they love doing what they were doing. And, and, and it was a light bulb moment. I realized you live once, so you should live for yourself. Don't live for your parents. Don't live for your wife. Don't live for... Anyone else, if you're not in a situation where, let's say you have a mortgage and kids and all that stuff, and you can really pursue your passion, what are you waiting for? So I, that was kind of my light bulb moment. I was in my mid-20s. I said, I'm going to get back into a, uh, an improv acting class just to start, just to get my feet wet. And while I was in the improv acting class, I met a stand-up comedy, a lady who taught stand-up comedy, started taking her class. And all of this comes in full circle when you learn in the stand-up comedy class that the best way to become a better comedian is to get on stage as much as you can, preferably at least five to ten times a week, and to write, write, write. Just keep writing new material, keep writing new material. And that takes away that intimidation factor of, oh my God, if I don't do well, it's just me. Uh, the fact is that you are going to be getting on stage sometimes three or four times in one night. And in those three or four times you get on stage in just one night, you're going to have some good shows, you're going to have some bad shows. But the good news is you're always going to have another show. So I always say nowadays I look at stand-up comedy as a work in progress. It's like this uh, piece of art that starts out with a white canvas and you're painting and painting and painting. And that painting is never done. You might come one day and be like, I want to shade that corner. Now I want to add this color. It's never done until you decide to record it as a stand-up comedy special and you put it on air. And now that painting is done. And now you got to go and start working on your next painting. So when you look at it like that, the fact that you might do well or do poorly on one given night or one given show um, just doesn't affect you anymore. So that was going to be a question I was going to ask if you're doing, if you're doing like early on four bits in a row for you, would you say you performed well on the first one, the rest, like the very last run or like, was it strictly audience based? Like where, where would you say you were like in the most of like the groove that you wanted to be in? Well, first of all, it's not four bits in a row. It's four sets in a row. Four sets means you're doing four complete shows. Now, depending on where you are, if you're out of town and you're headlining, those could be four one-hour shows. Um, but if you're in town, you're usually doing 10 to 20-minute sets. And so there really is no rhyme or reason to it. You might do, like, I, th I don't think I've ever done four headlining sets in a, in a night, which would mean, you know, four hours of stand-up in one night. Um, I, I have for sure done three sets and there are times when you think, oh my God, because in order to get three shows into an evening, you got to start your first show at like six o'clock or something, or sometimes five. And so I'm thinking, gosh, five o'clock on a Saturday, it's beautiful out. Who's going to come to this show? This is going to be a horrible show. Well, all of a sudden you get this crowd and they end up giving you the best energy of the night. And you, you, and you kill it, your first show. You're like, oh, my God, that was great. So you're like, oh, this is going to be an amazing night because the, the, you know, the 7 or 8 o'clock show on a Saturday is usually the best crowd because they're rested, they're ready to go, they're excited. Well, they might show up and just for some reason they're not, they don't, they don't uh, uh, mesh well together. And then, and then your last show might end up being the best again. So there's no rhyme or reason. There's no – the one thing that I will say – and they say that this, this is why, according to Steve Martin in his book that he wrote, the reason he said he quit comedy was because of the late show Friday. Uh, and what that means is usually when you do that 10 p.m. or later show on Friday, you are dealing with an audience that's been working all week. They worked that day. They left work. They went to dinner. They got really hammered. They're exhausted. And now they've come to your show at 10 p.m. 
and they're falling asleep or they're acting, uh, you know, belligerent or whatever. So yeah, usually the late show Friday tends to be the worst crowd of the week, but I've also had great crowds on late show Friday, you know, and, and also by the way, because stand up is, I, I love stand up comedy because I, I, I compare it to boxing sometimes where I say as a boxer, you can improve on so many different parts of your game, right? You can work on the speed bag, you can hit the, the heavy bag, you can do jump rope, you can work on your endurance, you can, you know, spar, there's a million ways to get better. Similarly with stand-up, you can work on becoming a better writer, you can work on your crowd work, you can work on whatever it is. And sometimes when you end up with that late show Friday, and let's say the, the club is running late, so rather than starting on time at 10 o'clock, they start at 11 o'clock and the audience is antsy and they're talking and they're tweeting about like, oh, this is a late start and I don't want to be here, blah, blah, blah. You may just kind of throw your hands up in the air and be like, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to go up there and I'm just going to riff. And that sometimes creates the best situation because you've lowered the stakes and you go up there and you just start talking to them and you end up having the best show you've had all week. So perfect transition to the whole concept of like joke telling versus stand up. So pretend you're talking to an idiot because you are. What is the difference between being a funny person telling a good joke versus being a stand up comedian? What, what is like well, the general population not understand about those two? Well, listen, a lot of people go, oh, I'm so funny at the barbecue. I'm funny at my, you know, uh, you know family, friends stuff. Like I, I have a lot of friends who are really good joke tellers. And joke, joke telling, there's a rhythm to it. You know, two guys walk into a bar. This happens. That, there's a rhythm to it, right? And you memorize these jokes. And these are things that have been written out in the world. And you just learn them. You tell them. You you're, you're kind of a gregarious human being and you go to parties and you love to tell jokes. And, you know, I, I don't have that many jokes. Um, that's what joke telling is. Stand-up comedy, especially the format we have now, again, back in the day when it was Borschfeldt, those were jokes. And those guys back in the day had, you know, a bunch of jokes. So you could, they probably could walk into a party and someone would say, tell us a joke. And they would say, well, let me, uh, you know, um, I, you know, I, I went to my doctor. I said, doctor, my, uh, my wife is saying blah, blah, blah. You know, like that's, that's how it used to be. Now, uh, stand-up, I think it started basically with, with guys like, uh, I think, Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, Carlin, Pryor. They started talking about their lives. You know, Richard Pryor talked about trying to freebase cocaine and accidentally setting himself on fire. So he's talking about his real-life experiences right uh he talks about shooting uh, uh the uh, using his gun to shoot the battery of his car because he got an argument with his wife so all these guys start talking about their lives and all of a sudden it's almost a therapy of sorts and it's a point of view so if you're a funny joke teller and you go on stage a lot of people i think go on stage those first few times and they die a horrible death because they go wow it was so funny at the party I'm not funny here. Well, the difference is people at the party know you. You're comfortable talking to them. Um, your jokes are funny because they just want to hear stupid, funny jokes. But no one is saying, tell a story about your life and make it funny, which is kind of what you got to do in stand-up. And, and also, when you're doing that in stand-up, you're in front of a bunch of strangers. That's the other thing that I experienced because early on in stand-up comedy, you either do what's called an open mic, which is you know, a bunch of other stand-up comedians in the back of the room uh, worried about their own material, not paying attention to you, plus like a handful of patrons at the bar who are watching and trying to laugh, but nobody knows who you are. And so it's a real, real hard situation to do stand-up in, but that's how you grow. Um, or you're doing what's called a bringer. Bringer shows are where uh, amateur comedians will... Uh, There'll be a guy who has, you know, gone to a restaurant, let's say, and says, listen, uh, what's your slowest night? And the restaurant says, well, Tuesdays are our slowest night. And the guy goes, all right, well, can I get Tuesday nights and do a comedy night here and you give me a little bit of money? And the guy goes, sure. So then this person goes and starts booking 
amateur comedians to be a part of the Tuesday night comedy shows. And what you end up with is it's called a bringer because when you get booked to do those shows, that um, that uh, um, the, the, the booker says everybody needs to bring four or five audience members with them. Um, why is that? Because the fact is nobody knows anybody. You're all unknowns, so no one's going to buy a ticket to come to some silly comedy night. But if you if you each make your friends and family come. And everybody between the you know ten comics, everyone brings five people. Now you're gonna have fifty people in the audience. We got a show. The the restaurant's making their money. Everyone's good to go. Now again, with the bringer shows, what happens is when I do a bringer show, and this is early in my career, and I bring ten of my family and friends, where well, at least I've got some support in the audience. So when I go on stage. They're going to, for the most part, give me some love and laugh and all that stuff. And so that's, again, early on in your career. Then all of a sudden what happens is you move up. So, for example, for me, that moment of moving up was when I became a regular at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles, which is one of the top comedy clubs in the world. And when you become a regular at one of these clubs, you're no longer having to bring anybody. You just show up in an audience because it's a comedy club. But the difference is now that audience has no idea who you are and you are following, uh, you know, professional comics who just killed it. So now you're going on stage following professional comedians. And by the way, they're not going to, the club's not going to give you the prime, you know, 10 PM spot. They're going to give you the 1 AM spot. So now you're getting up at 1 AM following guys you used to watch on HBO. You're following Andrew Dice Clay. You're following, you know, Paul Mooney, you're following uh, Eddie Griffin, you're following uh, Martin Lawrence, whoever these people are, and you're coming up and there's only a handful of people left. And again, you, nobody knows you and you don't know them. And so you got to do your stand-up. And so again, this is the difference between stand-up and joke telling. Now I've got to figure out, these people have no idea who I am. So if I went up and just started doing joke telling, Two guys walk into a bar. People are going to look at me and be like, what the hell is this guy talking about? You know, and I, I've been watching these professional comedians tell me their points of view about the world and make me laugh. Now this guy's just doing jokes. What is this? So basically what happens is that's when you need to – the difference between a joke teller and stand-up comedy is that a, joke t- that a stand-up comedian has a point of view. And there are some stand-up comedians, by the way – who are more joke writers, joke tellers. So, you know, if you look at like a Mitch Hedberg or you look at a Dave Attell, um, uh, some of these guys, they've written jokes. They're, they're very funny, well-written jokes, but they still have a point of view behind them. That's the difference between a joke and a joke teller and, and, and a stand-up comedian. The stand-up comedian has to have a point of view. There's something about you that, that defines you. So that's the big one. That's the big thing is the point of view. Yeah, I love that. Um, I listened to your TED talk, and I, 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 it was fascinating how very much like what seemed culturally relevant to your upbringing, you were not afraid to flip that on its head and sort of what sounded like rip on your own background a little bit. But you know, in, in some ways, I feel like bring out bring up some really really interesting points. Die, would you be willing to dive into that a little bit as well? I'd love to hear sort of your perspective on like the TED talk you delivered, uh, your perspective on that. What made you sort of share the jokes you did in that moment? Like what you were trying to get out of and share through laughter? Like what what was that that like what was the driving force behind all that? Sure. Now I did two. Was this the one where I was wearing like a silver suit in? Yep. Yep. The, I listened to this. I listened to the silver suit one. Okay, not the one that was outdoors in in in, uh, in Doha, right? Nope, nope, nope. So basically, the way TED Talk came about. So I, I, in all honesty, I didn't even know I didn't know what TED Talks were, uh, and and we had gone in in two thousand and seven. We did a tour called the Axis of Evil Comedy Tour, and what that was was again when I became a regular at the Comedy Store in the early two thousands or actually, uh, it was actually probably 1999 when I became a regular. Mitzi Shore, who was the owner of the comedy store at the time, um, she was notorious for helping people make their careers, like people like uh, 
Jim Carrey, David Letterman, uh, uh, you know, Jay Leno, all these guys came up at the comedy store. So that's like the mecca of comedy. And so Mincy made me a regular in the late 90s. And, um, and then she was also known to come up with these theme nights where she would take like, because you know, on, on any given night you get up, just you follow any other comedian, doesn't matter their race, religion, whatever, sex, they just, you, you just, you go up after a man or woman, doesn't matter. But once in a while she would take some of her comics and say, okay, we're going to do a ladies night. Uh, we're going to do a Latino night. We're going to do a black night. So similarly, in early 2000, um, before September 11th happened, Mitzi was really into the news. She was Jewish and she's watching the news and there's a, a, a piece on how that in, in, in the Middle East there's an uprising uh, also known as an intifada with the Palestinians uh, against the Israelis. And so Mitzi has this epiphany. She goes, you know what? I think that this conflict is happening and it's going to keep happening and pretty soon there's going to be a need for a positive voice of Middle Easterners and Muslims in the world. Like we need to have a positive voice. And given that, she goes, I think comedy is there is a way to heal. And so she wants to do all of a sudden a like Middle Eastern or Muslim night. So at the time, I'm the only Middle Eastern comedian at the club. So she starts finding others and we bring on uh, Ahmed Ahmed, who's Egyptian American, Aaron Cater, he's half Palestinian. Um, a bunch of other comics, uh, Sam Tripoli, a buddy of mine, and we start doing what's called the Arabian Nights. That's what it's called. Well, as we tour with the Arabian Nights from time to time, Iranians, and a lot of people don't know this, Iranians are not Arabs, and they will remind you of it. It's like if you went to like a Cuban and you said, oh, you're Mexican. They'd be like, no, I'm actually Cuban. It's different. So Iranians will say, look, we're not Arab. And so why are you guys calling it Arabian Nights? Well, we said, well, that's what Mitzi called it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, long story short, we, me, Ahmed, and Aaron end up just spinning off on this and calling it the Axis of Evil Comedy Tour. So we do the Axis of Evil Comedy Tour. It comes out on Comedy Central in 2007 with me, Aaron, Ahmed, and this guy named Dino Vidala. Uh, it's the first time you see Middle Eastern or Muslim comedians on American television that are not, you know, playing terrorists. Like, we actually make people laugh. And so we get a bunch of media, a bunch of press around it. That then spins into us actually going to the Middle East to do shows. And at the time, there had not been any American comedians who went to the Middle East to do shows. So we were, like, the first group that went. And we get welcomed with open arms. It's, like, over... The uh, as we fly, I, I always say, like over the Atlantic, I feel like we turn into the Beatles because we land in Dubai and they're like, Oh, we have a press conference signed lined up for you this evening. And I'm like, Press conference, who's going to come to a press conference for some comedians? Well, a lot of people are. So we end up doing sold out shows in five countries over a whole month. We did like 27 shows in 30 days. It's just whirlwind tour, and it's it, it's like it's amazing. So this was all through 2007. Well, after that, uh, the guy who had um, produced the, the tour, uh, this guy named Jamil Abuwarde, he gets in touch with me. He says, listen, um, I did a TED Talk in Dubai uh, for a TEDx. And he goes, uh, the main, one of the main people from TED was there. And, I, and my TED Talk was all about bringing laughter to the Middle East. And since you guys came as the Axis of Evil, we basically, like, at the time, there wasn't really much stand-up happening in the Middle East, but I think we helped kind of jumpstart that. So he says, I did this TED Talk, and they liked it, and so they've invited me to go to uh, England, to Oxford, to give a talk on bringing comedy to the Middle East, and they wanted me to have one of the comedians come. So can you come and do it? And I was like, all right. And in all honesty, again, I didn't know what TED was, and I was like, well, what am I going to talk about? He goes, listen, just take your stand-up, and do some of those jokes, but also have a point point of view, kind of make it into like a, a talk as opposed to just straight stand-up. So I was like, okay. So I was like, well, what's my point of view? And I was like, well, I guess I could talk about how we always get pigeonholed in Hollywood and how why aren't we playing the parts of like the leads, like the James Bonds and all that other stuff. So 
that's what that was. I went there and it was a great experience and I had no idea that it was going to have a life of its own. And it did. And now I guess on like on YouTube, it's had like several million hits and, and, and they actually invited me to go back and do another one in Doha, Qatar. And that one has even more hits. It's got like 14 million views or something. Um, and I think when you do a TED talk, especially when you're a comedian, I think that they try to invite comedians to come and talk, but you got to take some of your jokes and then say, how can I present this with like a thesis statement? And my thesis statement at that time, uh, the ones, the two TED Talks I did, both of them, I think the thesis statement uh, were, were um, kind of uh, summarized by, you know, Middle Easterners and Muslims in Hollywood are misrepresented and media kind of presents us all as villains. You know, they, they often say we play dictators and, uh, and, uh, and terrorists. Um, and hopefully the idea is that we can get past that and just be either heroes or, or regular people. And I think we see that now. I think more and more now we're seeing it with shows like Rami, which is uh, Rami Yusuf's show on Hulu. Um, obviously a lot of uh, Indians uh, who they're not Muslim and they're not Middle Eastern, but still they're brown people. Um, they're they have a lot of shows, whether it's Mindy Kaling, Aziz Ansari, um, you've got Kumil Nanjani. It seems like slowly, slowly we're making progress. And, and I think that's what it takes. It takes creators of these backgrounds, people from these backgrounds to create those parts. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that we have more and more of that. Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> Do you, um, what is it about laughter? This is going to lead up a little bit to my favorite question and how I like to kind of end the show. But what is it about laughter that drives you to do what you do? Well, you know, people ask me a lot of times, they go, uh, what's your what's your goal as a comedian? Is it to change people's minds? Is it to represent your people? And I go, really, my, my number one goal as a comedian is to be funny. I mean, that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to be funny. So if you watch my Netflix special, um, that was taped in Washington, D.C. right after the election of Trump, and I called it immigrant, and I'm trying to make a political statement, which is to say immigrants are good and they love America, and it's, the word immigrant is not this word that, that Trump has you know, tried to show it to be, which is a derogatory term at the time. I'm trying to make a political statement. However, in that show, I have fart jokes, and I have jokes about balls. So there's political jokes in there and there's silly jokes. And so ultimately we just, you know, a comedian wants to, wants to make you laugh. And, and, and I think we love to laugh, you know, obviously it's like we get to hang out with other comedians, like backstage, there's a lot of, you know, joking and, and the green room and, and you get to, I mean, what a great job. You get to be with people, talk about intellectual ideas and also find the funny in it, you know? Um, so that's really your, your number one thing, you know? And, and then another thing I heard DL Hughley say one time, he said, you know, comedy is like giving people their medicine, but in orange juice, so they don't taste it. And I think that's the other thing for me. The other level comes if you can be funny and have a message if you can be funny and not waste your ability to actually have some say something, uh, then I think that your comedy is is at, a, at another level. And those are my. I mean, listen, I, I love all kinds of comedians. I love comedians who do silly jokes, but if I find a comedian who can have um, some sort of substance behind their jokes, uh, that's my favorite kind of comedian. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Um, so my favorite question on the planet and how I like to sort of wrap up the show is all centered around like, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? So like, what is it that drives Maz to, to, to be who he is, what you're trying to do? What's the inspiration you want to leave in the world? Like what, what is that for you? Jeez, you know, under coronavirus, what gets me out of bed is uh, there's a coffee shop. I love their coffee. It's called Kings road cafe and it's delicious. Uh, you know, it feels like we're, we're on this, treadmill of kind of we're, we're on hold 
Um, and, and so, you know, you're looking for purpose every day, it feels like. But that said, look, I am lucky to be able to do what I love doing. Um, I, I tell people, if you can find what it is that you love, I say, if, if, you, if you found that, then you're lucky and go for it. If you haven't found it, then try and think about what it was that you used to do as a kid when you didn't have to worry about uh, mortgages and all that other stuff. What is that thing? You know, I've talked to people about that and I've said, you know, um, maybe it was you love baseball. I go, okay, you're not going to be a professional baseball player. Well, go find a way to be involved with baseball, whether it's playing in a softball league with your friends or it's being an assistant coach on a high school team or whatever that is. Find that thing. So for me, that thing was comedy. It was laughter. It was creating. You know, I watch my kids now when they, uh, with with all these videos and stuff like they they create little funny silly videos and I'm like that is so cool that they're doing that and so now for me it's like what can I come up with that's creative whether it's a TV show you know if I could be involved with creating the next show and and putting myself in it uh, whether it's a movie or nowadays with this silly social media you know all you got to do is come up with like a one minute video that you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of funny. All right, let me put that out there. So all of these things come together. They culminate in one as, as, as you know, allowing us to create. So what gets me up in the morning is the chance to create. And if I can turn that uh, from just the benefit of having a creative outlet to now becoming some sort of uh, way of like having an income, then that's even that's icing on the cake. If I could turn my silliness into a, a, a living, then that's icing on the cake. And that's kind of what I have with my stand-up comedy because, you know, I, I make a living doing stand-up comedy. So that's what gets me up in the morning is just a chance to, to, to create and then, and then hopefully turn that into um, a living. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, I obviously want to, I want to give you an opportunity as well to, um, where, what's the best way for people to like, if you want to point somebody towards like your favorite content to reach out to you, to, to follow you, what's sort of the best like social handle or point of contact you want to reach towards. And obviously we'll include anything in show links as well. Everything is at Maz Jobrani, M-A-Z-J-O-B-R-A-N-I, at M-A-Z-J-O-B-R-A-N-I, Maz Jobrani. Um, I'm active on Instagram. I'm active on Twitter. I'm active on uh, Facebook. And I've got a whole YouTube channel. It's just, you know, YouTube slash Maz Jobrani. Um, and, um, yeah, people can watch a bunch of my clips there. Um and, and people can watch my Netflix special, um, which is called Immigrant. If they just put my name in, I, I'm sure on, on the internet, a bunch of stuff comes up and they can just follow me there. Love that. Maz, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? That's it. Be good to people. Wear your mask. Keep your distance. And uh, let's get through this together. Love that. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. All right. You take care.